friends, welcome to episode two of You Don't Know Jack. I'm your host, Sarah Dimio, and this podcast is your place to be with everything you need to know following the career of Jack Nicholson. Last week, I told you about Jack's very first feature film, Crybaby Killer, from 1958, a B-movie produced by Roger Corman. This week, I've got more B-movies for you. Jack was a busy boy in the year 1960, because today, I've got four movies to tell you about, to be exact. So let's start with where we are in terms of the timeline of Jack's career. We're in the late 1950s. Jack has completed his first feature film, as well as a starring role with Crybaby Killer. Next up is a bit part in another feature called Too Soon to Love. Too Soon to Love also goes by a couple other titles, High School Honeymoon, which I find a little cheesy, and Teenage Lovers, which I think is just boring. Of the three, Too Soon to Love is actually the best and really the most fitting for the subject matter. This is an exploitation film about two high school lovers, Jim and Kathy, played by Richard Evans and Jennifer West. And basically, things go from wonderful to desperate real quick for these two, when Kathy becomes pregnant. I had never seen this movie up until a week or so ago, and I have to tell you, it was difficult to find. I searched and I searched for weeks until finally I found a DVD on Amazon. This DVD is something else. It's a double feature, Too Soon to Love, and another movie from around the same time with a similar premise called Unwed Mother. So I want to make sure that you're in the same headspace that I was before I watched. For that, I need to describe this DVD case to you. The front cover shows two movie posters, one for Too Soon to Love and one for Unwed Mother. The heading up at the top says, VCI Entertainment Presents, then in big letters, Youth Run Wild. And then down near the bottom, it says, Hormones Run Amok! Exclamation point. On the back, the description for the movie we'll be talking about is as follows. Too Soon to Love has two teenage lovers from dysfunctional families that go all the way. All the way is in quotes. She becomes in the family way, flees from a wicked abortionist, and later attempts suicide. He steals money to retain a real doctor. Real is in quotes. This classic teenage melodrama was the directorial debut of Richard Rush. So as I prepared to dive into this feature, having just that premise to go on, and obtaining this DVD, I'll admit I was rolling my eyes a bit. I expected your classic cautionary tale, the kind that was over the top, even at the time that it came out, so that when you watch it 60 years later, you do so just as a goof. You know, the kind where it's so bad it's good. Well, let me tell you, I was surprised. Because this was not that. Now, as I said, this was the directorial debut of Richard Rush. Jack would go on to make two more films with Rush, those being Hell's Angels on Wheels and Psych Out in 1967 and 1968, respectively. Produced by Mark Lipsky and Richard Rush. Screenplay by Laszlo Garog and Richard Rush. And, get a load of this, the story 
was by Laszlo Garog, Richard Rush, and it was the first writing assignment of Francis Ford Coppola. Jack plays a character named Buddy. He only appears in two scenes. If you ever happen to look the movie up on Wikipedia, do not be fooled by what it says for the premise there, because it says, quote, the film is about the romantic relationship between a woman and a man barely out of their teens and another man named Buddy Nicholson, who tries to steal her away from him. Um, whoever wrote that as the description didn't see the movie, plain and simple. It opens at what appears to be a carnival on the beach. There's this big group of teens running through, excited, and they all hop onto this trolley. Jim and Buddy both get up into the front and they start egging the driver on to get this thing moving. And the guy says, we'll go when I'm ready to go. So they're like, okay, okay, we'll go when he's ready to go. But then Buddy reaches up front and I guess he pushes the start button. I'm not very familiar with how these cars work. And the trolley speeds off with the conductor chasing behind it. So they hijack a trolley car in the opening scene. Two motorcycle cops who are nearby chase the car down. So it comes to an abrupt stop and this huge group of teens all take off running. Except for Kathy, who was with the group. She stays behind and Jim stays with her because she says that she's not feeling so well. The cops tell them to go straight home. So Jim and Kathy take off. The two of them are what you would probably imagine. Jim is an attractive young man, skinny, dark-haired. Kathy is a pretty blonde who wears long skirts and her hair up in a ponytail. Now, understand something about me. Cute is not a word that I use. I think it's gross. But sometimes it's just the right word. It's the best word to describe Jim and Kathy when they're together. The next part was cute. They go over to a bench. Jim asks Kathy to sit down, but the bench is wet. So Jim at first wipes it with his hand, and then he sits down and slides across it, wiping it with his ass, I guess. And then he says, see, it's dry now. I was like, okay, that's cute. So they take a taxi back to Kathy's house, and Jim starts to walk her to the door, but she stops him before they get any further. Would you care if I kissed you goodnight? He asks her. And she says, are we supposed to? And they have this back and forth, and it's all very innocent. The very next scene shows a car with the hood up, and the car is bouncing up and down. And I was like, okay, are we suggesting a little rising tension here? So Jim puts the hood down and he gets into the driver's seat of the car and he's looking around, feeling it out. He's trying to buy this car. So he ends up buying the car from the local barber. It's all in an effort to impress Kathy. Later that night, Kathy calls her friend Irene, who comes and picks her up and they go down to the drive-in. Jim works at the drive-in at the concessions. When Kathy gets there, she goes up to the register where Jim is working and again, it's very cute back and forth. He tells her he'll see her as soon as the movie starts. And then immediately after that, Buddy drives in along with two other guys. It's really a sight to behold because you've got these three guys packed in together into a hot rod. But you know what they're up to the moment they arrive. They're cruising. They're looking for girls to make out with. 
Buddy drives in and he's peering around over cars, looking around, looking for where the action is. So just as Kathy is getting back into the car with her friend Irene and their other friend, Virginia, Buddy and his guys pull up to the spot right next to them. They get out and they beeline right for the girl's car. One guy asks Virginia to come and check out the hot rod, and she does. One guy gets into the front seat of the girl's car with Irene, and Buddy gets into the back seat with Kathy. You can guess where this is going. So he looks over at her. She's not showing any interest in him. She's looking ahead at the screen. And he says, okay, come on. But she resists. He says, don't make me play a whole scene for you. But she says, leave me alone. Then Buddy says, I want to kiss you. And he keeps trying to force it on her. And finally, she says, don't you ever brush your teeth? And then at that point, the car door opens. Jim, the gallant hero, pulls Buddy out of the car and onto the ground. And this huge fight ensues. The fight scene is a little on the hokey side. It's a B-movie fight after all. But suddenly the whole drive-in, people are getting out of their cars, they're watching. Buddy knocks Jim into another car and the window breaks. The fight ends with Jim on the ground. Not unconscious, but definitely with a bruised ego, for sure. Buddy has a great throwaway line after the fight ends that you can just barely hear off screen. He says, ah, Sir Galahad had to be a big man or something. And that's all of Jack's scenes in Too Soon to Love. But I feel like I could say so much more about this movie. So I'll just speak a little bit more on it. Right after that fight, Jim and Kathy drive up to a hilltop. It's very playful. And then they begin kissing in the car. Watching all of these scenes gave me such a nostalgic type of feeling. Like, do you remember what it was like to be this young Remember dating? Remember college? Remember what it was like to have hormones that worked? There's a scene where Jim and Kathy go up by the shore. And Kathy says, I'm not scared anymore. And that's when they finally do it. Off screen, of course. But it's very cinematic. Kathy had this scarf in her hair. And just before they're about to do it, she tosses the scarf into the wind And the camera tilts up and we see it blow away and then finally down into the ocean. So from then on, they're seeing each other all the time. One scene, Kathy is on the phone with her mother saying Irene invited her to stay for dinner and they're going to study afterward when actually she was with Jim. And then another scene, Jim and Kathy are at this huge empty amphitheater with a shell stage And Jim yells out, I love Kathy Taylor. And it echoes all through the place. And he has Kathy do the same. And it's always very playful. And there are fountains at this amphitheater too. And every time Jim yells out, I love Kathy Taylor, the fountains shoot on. So again, suggestive. But then the trouble starts. Kathy dodges Jim for a week. And when he finally pulls up to her street and gets her to come into the car, she admits to him that she's, quote, going to have a baby. The word pregnant is never used. It's only referred to as going to have a baby. This is the late 1950s when this is all happening. So we're a good 14 years before Roe v. Wade. But Jim finds a woman who charges $100. 
She doesn't explain what she does or how she does it. She won't do it at her apartment. Instead, she has Jim and Kathy come to a seedy part of town, to this cramped building, where she tells them to come in through the back door. This sequence was dark and unsettling. They start to walk up this really narrow staircase, and the interior light is just blinding and very dramatic. And at that moment, another couple starts to come down the stairs. The man is helping the woman as she walks, and then we see the woman's face. She looks like she has been through a war. She's just staring straight ahead like a zombie. And that moment was disturbing. As the couple passes Jim and Kathy, Kathy says, I can't do this. And Jim says, come on, let's get out of here. Then as they leave through the back, the same way that they came in, they go past the garbage that is piled up out back, and the camera stops on the large pile of trash, which leads me to believe that this is some of the paraphernalia used by the woman as she performs the abortions. There's nothing too specific that can be made out, just empty bottles, an empty crate that says Diablo and a devil face printed on the side. But it's unsettling because you know it means something. They do find a real doctor who they convince to help them out, and he asks for $500. So Jim resorts to stealing the money late at night from the safe at the drive-in, but he's seen by his boss. So he speeds back to Kathy's house and tries to get her to take the money to go to the doctor. Kathy's parents wake up from the commotion and find Jim in Kathy's room. So Kathy, distraught, takes her father's car and speeds off towards the shore, intending to kill herself. And meanwhile, Kathy's father is about to kill Jim for hanging around Kathy so much. So at this point, Jim screams at him that she's going to have a baby. And suddenly, her father seems to soften. Jim takes off after her, and Kathy's father says, Wait, I'll go with you. But of course, Jim doesn't wait for him. Jim reaches the shore just as Kathy is attempting to drown herself in the ocean. So he goes in after her to drag her out. But obviously, she's fighting him, so he actually punches her out to drag her back to the shore. The movie ends on not a desperate or tragic note, but really on a hopeful one. Jim has Kathy laying down on the beach, and when she comes to, she asks, why did you stop me? He says it's all right, that her parents know, and that he doesn't know what they were so afraid of. We don't know what the future holds for any of these characters, or what they're going to choose to do. But what we do know is that they're all going to be okay. Nobody's life is ruined. They're going to work it out. The writing in this movie, this unknown exploitation B-movie released in 1960, was incredibly good. Incredibly good. Think about this movie and what the characters had to go through, and then think about a movie like Juno that came out in 2007. It's a different world we live in, but really there are 
certain things about being human that don't change. This movie, I would call a classic. And I think that they should make it easier to find because more people should see it. If only to see how far we've come and how much further we need to go. So that's all I'll say about Too Soon to Love. Too Soon to Love was released in February of 1960. So a few months later, on May 21st, 1960, Jack made an appearance on a short-lived TV series called Mr. Lucky. It was about an honest professional gambler who operated a floating casino, and it starred John Vivian. The episode that Jack appeared in was called Operation Fortuna. Then, on June 17th of that year, was the release of Jack's next feature, called The Wild Ride. The Wild Ride is a starring role for Jack. I first saw this one years ago. I bought a VHS copy off of eBay. I think I was about 15. When I rewatched it to do this review, it definitely brought back some memories. Directed by Harvey Berman, produced by Harvey Berman and Kinta Zertucci, screenplay by Ann Porter and Marion Rothman. Marion Rothman was a film editor with an impressive list of credits to her name. Some of the movies she edited are Mystic Pizza, Christine, Play It Again Sam, Funny Lady, and two of the sequels to Planet of the Apes. In The Wild Ride, Jack plays Johnny Varen. He's a rebellious punk kind of a guy who races hot rods and does what he wants. In the opening scene, there's a party going on. A lot of young people dancing, drinking. Then Johnny, looking like a smartass, comes down the stairs to the party. And there's also a montage in the opening of fast driving, more party scenes. And during this montage, we see Johnny speeding and he runs a cop right off the road. Then during the party scene, Johnny is seen hanging out, dancing with girls. And then the cops show up, asks everybody for their IDs. So Johnny is brought down to the station and the way that he sits in his chair while the cop is standing over him looking down tells us, I think, everything we need to know about Johnny as a person. He's slouching, leaning against the table. He's got this smug look on his face like, hmm, you can't touch me. The cop is questioning him about the other cop who was run off the road earlier. And Johnny's only response to him is, Sarge, I want to tell you something. You're a very far-out stud. Sarge, you're a far-out stud. So Johnny leaves the station and he meets back up with his people. One person who's missing from the group is Dave, played by Robert Bean. Johnny does not like Dave's new girlfriend, Nancy, played by Georgiana Carter. And the reason he doesn't like her is because she doesn't fit in with the group. And more importantly, Dave is spending all his time with her. Then we have a scene with Dave and Nancy together, and they start to talk about Johnny who, as you can imagine, Nancy disapproves of. But Dave says Johnny's his best friend, and he calls him Top Man. The group is all headed over to the beach because Johnny has a big race downtown at the track later that day. Well, Johnny shows up to the beach. 
He's sitting back, shirt off. The rest of the group shows up with their blankets and radios and whatnot. They're cracking beers open. Dave and Nancy start heading down to the beach too. And as they're driving, they see another couple from the group driving down that way too. So Dave and this other guy, Barney, start racing each other, passing each other in the road. Then we see a large truck barreling down from the other direction as Dave is driving on the wrong side of the road. Barney is blocking him so he can't get over, and he's yelling, chicken, forcing Dave and Nancy, since she's the passenger, into a game of chicken with this truck. Nancy is screaming, and I mean screaming, at Dave to turn, until finally he does and pulls over. Barney, who was watching the whole thing, pulls up next to them to give Dave grief, and then he takes off. Nancy is obviously shaken. She's upset at Dave, asking him why he took so long to turn. But Dave is pissed. He says, I'm chicken. And he tells her how that truck would have turned off. He yells this at her. He is genuinely distraught that he was the first person to turn before the truck. You see, teenage boys are stupid especially when they egg each other on. Apologies to any teenage boys who might be listening, but the thing is, I feel like you kind of know I'm right. So when Barney and his girl get to the beach, he tells Johnny all about what happened. And now Johnny is pissed at Dave and Nancy, for that matter, for making Dave turn. Again, I refer back to what I just said about teenage boys. Dave and Nancy show up, And now everybody is giving Dave hell for turning. But after a minute, everyone settles down. All the couples are on their respective blankets, fooling around with each other. And this was something that struck me as funny. Johnny is allegedly the top man, right? However, in that moment, he was the one guy there without a girl with him. He just kind of looks around and is surveying everyone else. Eventually, Dave... And another guy start fighting. The other people are calling Dave chicken, and Nancy has enough of it. So eventually Dave and Nancy leave, despite Johnny yelling at Dave to come back. So shortly after, Johnny goes back over to Dave's house to have it out with him. He tells Dave, that chick doesn't exist. I'll get you a new girl by tomorrow. I want her back, John. You don't want her back. You get yourself a new chick. I'm not like you, Johnny. They don't fall all over me. Don't worry about it. I'll see you get a new chick tomorrow. I don't want a new chick. Look, man, she can't cut it. She doesn't dig our way. I'm not so sure I dig our way either, Johnny. Like, what's wrong with it? We're swinging, man. You've got to snap out of this. The first thing you know, you're going to be sitting on a sofa watching TV, and that's the end. You might as well be dead. But Dave says he wants to be with Nancy, and Johnny is... Pissed. You listen to me. From now on, you're going to do what I tell you. That chick doesn't even exist. And don't you forget it. So now it's time for the big race down at the speedway. Barney rigs a car horn to sound uncontrollably. So when the cop guarding the gate comes over to check what's up, the rest of the group takes the opportunity to sneak into the speedway. When the cop asks Barney if he has a ticket, Barney says, oh, I don't need one. I'm driving. Cop asks him his name, and he says that he's Johnny Varen. 
So the cop checks the name off and lets him go in. Then the real Johnny shows up, walks right in through the gate. Cop stops him, asks him for a ticket. So obviously he says, I don't need one. I'm driving. Cop asks his name and he says, Johnny Varon. He says, I've already got a Johnny Varon checked off on here. So Johnny whips out his wallet and shows the ID to the cop. Cop is like, oh, uh, uh, go on ahead then. Johnny is not thrilled with Barney at this point. So he tells Barney to place a bet on him. And then Nancy also shows up at the Speedway looking for Dave, who isn't there, though, after the fight that he just had with Johnny. But Johnny sees her there and he has her come over and sit with the group. And he tells her Dave should be there soon. So the big race begins. Johnny is in his hot rod. He's racing this other guy named Sanders. The group is cheering him on. Poor Nancy is sitting right in the middle of them and she's visibly uncomfortable. Johnny ends up winning the race, but he does so only by running Sanders off the course and crippling his car. I would call that a hollow victory, but it's all the same to Johnny, though. He still got his trophy out of it. At this time, a cop comes up to Johnny, says to him that it was a great race, and is that how he got the officer who was run off the road? Well, he tells him the officer died and thought Johnny might want to know. But Johnny is indignant. He just says, yeah, thanks a lot. Johnny and the whole group go to a hangout called Chubby's. And he tells Nancy that he told Dave to meet them there, which of course he hasn't. When the group gets to Chubby's, Barney hangs back and calls Dave from a phone booth. Dave answers right away, thinking it's Nancy, but Barney says to him, I've got news for you. Your chick is here. The group all heads to the back. There's music playing. They're outside. Johnny drags Nancy over to dance with him. But Nancy, who is disgusted by Johnny, is rigid, barely even swaying side to side as they're dancing. She tells Johnny she's not through with Dave and she's not going to let him down. The group takes off from Chubby's and one of the other guys from the group goes up to Johnny and says, look, that chick of Dave's is lousing everything up. Let's dump her. But clearly Johnny has a plan. He says we will dump her, but not right now. And then he calls Barney over and he says to the two of them that they've got to teach this chick a lesson and he wants to take a ride up to a place right off the highway. They rejoin the rest of the group and Nancy is staring daggers at Johnny. She knows Dave isn't going to be there. Johnny says, oh, he'll be here. Nancy says she's going home. But when she turns to leave, one guy blocks her path. She turns another way and another guy blocks her path. And Johnny grabs her by the arms and shoves her into the passenger seat of his car. She tries to open the door to run, and he grabs her and pulls her back in. He kidnaps her. Before he drives off, one guy from the group tells Johnny to check out what he did with Johnny's trophy. He attached it to the grill of the car. And I only mention this detail because his next line struck me. He says, just like Marlon Brando in The Wild One. Who would have thought that 16 years later, Jack and Marlon Brando would co-star in a movie together, The Missouri Breaks? Not to mention, Brando was for many years a neighbor of Jack's. Mulholland Drive was also where Warren Beatty and Dennis Hopper had homes. And that street became known as Bad Boy Drive. 
But getting back to the action, the whole group drives off to this place right off the highway. As soon as Johnny stops the car, Nancy jumps out and takes off running. And Johnny runs after her. And once he catches up to her, they don't really fight. They scrapple. At one point, Johnny is just holding onto her hair. Then it looks like she's going to bite his arm, but then she doesn't. Okay, what is it about fight scenes in B-movies? I felt like we were doing so well. And then like clockwork, the awkwardly choreographed fight begins. B-movies can do so much in cinematography, sound editing, yet fight scenes are the one thing they can't do. But mercifully, it doesn't last very long because then Dave shows up, screams at Johnny, and Johnny lets Nancy go. Nancy just stands and turns her back to the two of them. And when Dave goes to put his hand on her shoulder, she just says, don't touch me and runs off. Dave says, you had to do it, didn't you, Johnny? You had to spoil this too. And Dave runs off in the other direction. Johnny calls after Dave and the way he delivers the line is a bit much. Let's just say that Maybe it would be a few more years until Jack won any major acting awards. Dave! Dave! I only did it to scare Dave! I did it for you! Well, Dave is now devastated. He takes off speeding in his car, and Johnny and the rest of the group all take off after him in their cars. They fly past a cop on a motorcycle, who then turns around and chases after them. Two more cops get word over their radio that there's a speeder. Meanwhile, Dave keeps speeding through these narrow, winding roads until eventually we hear tires screech and the screen rapidly flashes white. And then the sound of a crash. Now, I have to say, this is a great crash scene. And that's because it was just so simply done. No tricks, just the cars speeding, then the sound of tires screeching, then an immediate rapid flash of black and white, and then the sound of a crash. Johnny catches up to Dave's car and finds that Dave was thrown from the car. He's lying face down on the ground. So Johnny comes over to him, kneels down, puts his hand on his back, and Dave is not responding. Johnny just sits down on the ground next to him. Then all the other cars pull up and they all get out, Nancy runs to where Dave is lying face down. She kneels down next to him and just crumples over him in tears. Johnny goes over to the group and he says, I killed him, just like I killed that cop. At that point, the cops arrive. Johnny goes right over to them, doesn't put up any fuss, and they have him get into the back seat. But here's the kicker. After Johnny gets into the police car, Barney says to the group, let's split. This is a drag. And one of them responds, we're with you, big man. So just like that, in less than a minute, one of their friends is dead. The other is going to jail. And they already have a new top man. It's as if to them, it never even happened. The Wild Ride is an entertaining movie. It's about an hour long, and I think that's a perfect amount of time for a movie like this. Is it a little overacted in some parts? Yes. But can we look past that? Absolutely. I think so. Because the thing is, you're not supposed to like Jack's character, Johnny Varen. He's supposed to be a punk. 
you're supposed to not root for him. The good guy in the movie is the supporting character, Dave. And it's not meant to be taken too seriously because the characters in the movie have such a misguided idea of what to take seriously in life. And I'm not going to be naive and say that I think a young audience would relate to The Wild Ride because they probably wouldn't. Because it's so niche. Hot rod racing, the beat culture, the top man of the group, the language that these characters use. In the same vein as Cry Baby Killer, it's another movie that seems to be frozen in time. So where do we find it? This one is actually super easy to find because it's in the public domain. So you just go onto YouTube and type in The Wild Ride. If you don't want to go onto YouTube and you have Amazon Prime Video, it'll be there for you too. The next movie that I'm talking about today is not frozen in the time period which it was made. Next up, we have Studs Lonigan, which was released in September of 1960. Now, I didn't know this, but Studs Lonigan is a novel trilogy by the author James T. Farrell. The books are Young Lonigan, The Young Manhood of Studs Lonigan, and Judgment Day. And I wish I had known going in to watch this one that it was based on a novel, because I'm a believer that if you're going to be dissecting a film and its screenplay, you should know the source material that it was adapted from. So that's on me for not being aware of these books. But the upside is, it gives me the opportunity to experience this movie with no expectations. This is one that I had never seen before, and I watched it for the first time just about a week and a half ago. The books were written during the Great Depression, with the common theme being to expose the evils of capitalism. And I guess this is why it didn't occur to me that the movie was based on any literature, because this is another B-movie, and not to sound like a broken record, but typically when we think of B-movies, I think we're just not expecting to see a serious work. Pauline Kael, a film critic for The New Yorker, wrote about the movie, quote, It's an honorable low-budget effort by a group of people trying to break the Hollywood molds. And there are a few passages of daring editing that indicate what the film was aiming for. And I think I know some of the scenes that she is referring to. So, shall we begin? Directed by Irving Lerner, written and produced by Philip Jordan, and the editor on this film was one Verna Fields. Verna Fields edited Jaws. Jaws is one of my favorite movies of all time. I nearly jumped out of my skin when I saw her name come up on the opening credits. Quick story regarding Verna Fields and Jaws. In that movie, the characters Matt Hooper and Chief Brody venture out on a boat late at night to look for the shark. They come upon a fisherman Ben Gardner's boat, just floating, seemingly empty. So Hooper gets into his wetsuit, goes down to check the hull. When he gets down there, there's a porthole on the side of the boat, and from inside, Ben Gardner's severed head pops up into view. It's a great jump scare the first time you see it. Originally, when it was shot, it didn't look the way that Steven Spielberg had hoped, 
but the studio wouldn't give him any more money to reshoot it. So Spielberg put up $3,000 of his own money and reshot that scene as we see it in the movie in Verna Field's swimming pool. Isn't that something? Okay, end of story time. The opening credits to Studs Lonigan are quite beautiful. It's city scenes of Chicago before the Depression, but it's not in photos. The texture to me appears to be watercolors, even though the film is in black and white. The movie stars an actor named Christopher Knight as Studs, whose name is actually Bill. Jack plays a character named Weary Riley, one of Studs' buddies, along with Kenny, played by Frank Gorshin, who, funnily enough, played the Riddler in the original Batman TV series, and Polly, played by Robert Casper. First scene opens, it's New Year's Eve, 1920. Studs is nowhere to be seen, but his three guys are shooting pool, waiting for him, and they've got four girls with them, one for each guy. The girl, who is supposed to be Studs' date for the evening, asks where he is, to which Weary responds, he's out with a nice girl, he'll get to you later. So we see Studs dancing with Lucy, played by Venetia Stevenson. I hesitate to say that he's in love with her. To me, it seems more like he's in love with the fantasy of her. She's literally the girl he's been dreaming of. Studs wants to have one more dance with Lucy, but she tells him this is the last one, and she takes off on him. After that, Studs is walking out by himself, and we can hear a voiceover of his inner monologue, asking himself, what difference does it make that it's 1920? What's he going to do? And he says to himself, the world's not a year older tomorrow. It's just one day older. He goes into an apartment building to visit a former teacher of his, Julia Miller. She, of course, addresses him as William, not Studs. But the thing with Studs is that he seems to be searching for something, something that could just give him some kind of clarity. He eventually does meet up with his friends, who are still waiting for him at the pool hall. He's intoxicated when he comes through the door, albeit in a festive mood. There's a big party to follow. Everyone is drunk, dancing. One girl makes moves on studs, though he couldn't be less interested. So he takes off suddenly from the party, but no worries to the young lady who is just trying to flirt with him. As soon as studs is gone, Weary, who is already dancing with another girl, appears immediately and pulls the girl to her feet and says, Come here, baby, I'll take care of you too. So now he's got two girls to dance with. Studs comes from strict Irish Catholic parents. His father wants him to grow up, get a job, get married. His mother wants him to become a priest. But Studs' big question is, why should he have to do any of those things? Studs, along with his buddies, all just kind of hang around. They're not looking to grow up. They're just looking for good times, drinking, shooting pool, and in one particular scene, just straight up messing with people. In this scene, the guys are out drinking, which, by the way, is illegal because it's Prohibition era, and they see a woman sitting alone with her head on the table like she's out cold. So Weary says, let's give her the you're oh so beautiful treatment. So they go over, they sit down at her table, she comes to and kind of notices these dudes all around her. So Weary sits down across from her and says, Say, Glamour, ain't I seen you someplace before? She just kind of stares back at him, confused. And so another guy says, 
You never saw her before. She's out of your class. And they keep saying things like, I've never seen someone as beautiful as her since the last time I judged a beauty contest. And nature gives you everything you need. You don't need lipstick or powder. And she just responds, who are you kidding, Buster? The woman, as it turns out, is a prostitute. And they had seen her over on State Street. To be honest, this part made me a little sad because they keep messing with her, saying they're going to get her fixed up, get her her own apartment. And she seems to start believing them. And Weary says, we'll even get you a steady, maybe one of us. So she asks, which one? And Weary just gives her a look and says, all of us. And then he lets out the most maniacal laugh ever, as only Jack can, of course. And Studs and Polly and Kenny all join in laughing, too. While this woman is just left with her head in her hands. Yeah, I'll do that. Me too. What do you say, lady? If, if you boys ain't kidding. Well, of course we ain't kidding. Then after we get you in the apartment, we'll get you steady. Maybe one of us. has a girlfriend named Eileen. And in the next scene, the two of them are at a merry-go-round and Eileen is looking to get married. She tells him that it's either going to be him or this other guy named Harry. She says her sister is about to have another baby and they're going to move Eileen off of their couch. So she needs to find another place to sleep. So after working on him for a bit, Polly agrees to marry her. So he says to Studs, Meet the future Mrs. Haggerty. And Studs begrudgingly says congratulations, but he's noticeably bothered. Bothered because he immediately starts asking himself, what's in it for Polly? Later on, as Studs and his family, his parents and his younger sister, are sitting around the dinner table, Studs' father lays into him. He calls him a pool room bum. Well, one day during the middle of winter, the guys are out in the cold, standing around a fire, looking through newspapers, looking for job openings. Weary finds one first, traveling salesman for the Pittsburgh area. Kenny says, no, no, you don't want to go there. You have to wash your hands all the time. Then Polly finds one for an experienced mechanic. So Weary says, are you an experienced mechanic, Polly? Then Kenny gives Weary a look and says, look again, Polly, maybe there's an opening for an experienced pool shark. Studs finds one, electrical engineer, to which Kenny snaps his fingers and replies, I've got a good idea, and Kenny and Weary say in unison, let's get a drink. Now, there's an immediate cut to the next scene. Credit, of course, to Verna Fields. The boys are now at a burlesque show. And as the crowd full of men are hollering at the ladies on stage, Weary, of course, is the loudest and the most riled up of the guys in their group. Studs has had his fill, and he takes off. He goes to see his former teacher again, Miss Miller. He's heavily intoxicated during this visit. She says she's glad to see him. She's happy he made it before the rain started. But Studs, delirious, begins hearing the burlesque music again. And he starts hallucinating Miss Miller as the burlesque dancer, complete with a rhinestone bustier and a feather boa. 
Now, this is the type of editing that I think Pauline Kael of The New Yorker was talking about. The aforementioned daring editing that indicate what the film was aiming for. And of course, credit goes again to Verna Fields, creating the juxtaposition of Stud's drunken head playing tricks on him, the reserve teacher looking forward to his company, and then the fantasy of her as one of the dancers on stage, all three images playing on a loop. Ultimately, Studs can't control himself, and he forces himself on her, and she resists him, and he ends up ripping her dress. And then when Studs realizes what he has done, he breaks down in tears. Now, like I had mentioned, I was not aware that Studs Lonigan was originally a novel trilogy. But I wonder if anyone out there who is familiar with the books, would you agree with me that there's a catcher in the rye sort of vibe to this? Sort of in the same vein that Holden Caulfield was fed up with society? I see certain parallels with Studs. And like with anything, the good times don't last forever. Studs meets up with the guys again, and they're all wasted, as usual. And he discovers that they've devised a plan. Studs sits down with them, and Weary and Kenny tell Polly to tell him, tell him what's going on. Well, Polly tells Studs that they're all going into business together, that they're going to open a nightclub. Polly then presents a check for $5,000 signed by his father-in-law. He says he gave it to him that afternoon to buy a medallion to get his own cab. But they figure Prohibition is here to stay. So why not profit off of it? Polly, in particular, is so proud of this idea. He says Eileen is going to be proud of him for a change. No more crazy hours. He's going to start living life for a change. And the scene ends with him tilting his head back, taking a drink, laughing, and then immediately cut to the next scene. We hear crying. The camera pans over and we're looking at a casket. And lying in that casket is Polly. Eileen is sitting by herself towards the back, her head bowed. The wake is packed. All the guys are there. Polly's entire family is there. Turns out Polly was clipped by a truck. Eileen has a great speech in this scene. She sits in her chair and she talks about how none of those guys were any good. They didn't know how much Polly loved her. And they made him feel ashamed of loving her. Like he should just be a kid forever. And getting married was some kind of trap. And it's only at this moment that we find out that Polly and Eileen had a baby. And Polly loved that baby. And he loved Eileen. Studs goes to see Miss Miller again. And this time her niece, Catherine, is there. On their first meeting, Studs gives Catherine a ring that he had intended to give to Lucy. And he says, welcome to Chicago. So now that the group is down to three, at a party, a girl attempts to flirt with Weary. But Weary tells her, oh, she's a pig. She scrapples and hits him when he tries to get with another girl. And Weary says to her, okay, baby, you asked for it. So in one swift move, he lifts her up and runs off with her. The whole time she's screaming and swatting at him. We find that Weary has been charged with rape. And as he stands before a judge in the courtroom upon being convicted, he is sentenced to 10 years in prison. And with that, that is Jack's last scene in the movie. While Studs is miserable, he's with Miss Miller's niece, Catherine, now, but having her doesn't seem to bring him any happiness. The group is dissipated at this point. Kenny has found himself a new career as a traveling entertainer. 
We see him up on a stage telling jokes to a crowd. But as all these things start to happen, newspapers begin to report on the depression and the absolute topper, we find out that Catherine is going to have a baby. Studs goes to a doctor, tries to see if there's any pills he can get, something to just make it all go away. But the doctor finally utters the word, pregnant. Finally, finally someone used the word. But Studs doesn't know what to do. He goes to his priest, Father Gulhuli. He says to him, I'm never going to be important. I'm never going to be anything. Father Gilhuli lets Studs know that that's not true, that he still has love in his heart. Then he lets him know that Catherine came to see him the day before. She told him about the baby, and she said she loves Studs. So Studs takes off running. It's pouring rain outside, and Catherine is sitting out on a park bench by herself, getting soaked. I thought that was a little overkill, just sitting forlornly in pouring rain. But Studs finds her. He drops to his knees. He says he's sorry about everything, that he loves her. She tells him to go back to his gang. And he says there is no gang anymore. I thought the ending was abrupt, but it hit home. He says to her, you told Father Gilhuli you loved me. And she says, because I thought you were good. Someone who would love me and our baby. But now I know you can't. But he begs. Yes, I do. And his exact words... His last lines in the movie are, I've got to love you. I've got to love you. So what does that mean? I've got to love you. Does he feel obligated? Like this needs to be the thing that finally gets him to grow up? That was the feeling that I got, that Studs is a character feeling desperation. And he's looking for that thing that makes him feel some kind of value. So I was impressed by the characters in this movie. I found myself rooting for them. I found myself caring about them. It was a portrait of people who are struggling. And it's very honest, very relatable. Studs Lonigan is another one you can find in full on YouTube. So if old black and white melodramas, period pieces are your thing, I really want you to give it a chance. Now, the last film that I'll be talking to you about today is my personal favorite of the four. It's without question the most lighthearted, and that is the original Little Shop of Horrors. It was released on September 14th, 1960, and it's a horror comedy directed and produced by Roger Corman. Screenplay by Charles B. Griffith. I first saw this one Around the same time that I first saw The Wild Ride, I was probably about 14 or 15. I actually ordered this one off of eBay too, also on VHS. I really enjoyed watching it again to do this review. I think I enjoyed it much more as an adult than when I was a kid. Although admittedly, I was only watching it that first time as a kid because I wanted to see a young Jack. But I'm finding now that this is exactly my brand of humor. So now I can appreciate it in a whole new way. Jack plays a masochistic dental patient named Wilbur Force. The movie also stars Jonathan Hayes as Seymour, Jackie Joseph as Audrey, and Mel Wells as Mr. Mushnick, all of whom had worked with Roger Corman before. 
Now, a lot of you might be familiar with the musical Little Shop of Horrors that came out in the 80s. This obviously is where it all came from. The setting is a flower shop located on Skid Row. The opening credit sequence shows crude drawings of cityscapes. The plants in this shop are cheap, and the clientele who frequent the shop are a different breed. We've got a recurring character named Mrs. Shiva, who always seems to be preparing for a funeral for a relative. We're also introduced to a character who eats flowers. After this man buys a bouquet, Mr. Mushnick says, I'll wrap it up for you. But the man says, that's okay, I'll eat it here. And sure enough, this dude pulls out a salt shaker and just starts snacking away on these flowers. Hey, do your thing. It's completely random, and that's what makes it funny. It's the randomness and these moments not being explained. And you've also got Dr. Farb, a sadistic dentist. He calls the shop because he needs more flowers for his waiting room. And of course, I mean, he's literally calling the flower shop while he's in the middle of torturing a patient. Seymour works at the shop. He's a bit of a bumbling, shy fellow. He heads back home to pick up a plant that he grew himself. And this is where we are introduced to Seymour's mother. One of those people who's always dying of something. Seymour is carrying a bag with him and his mother asks, you got something for me? He hands her a bottle of medicine. She reads the label and finds that it's, I believe she says 97% alcohol and her eyes light up. The label says it gives a surge of warm health. Well, shit, I'll take a good surge of warm health myself now and then. She takes a belt of it and wouldn't you know, she can walk again. She's not bedridden. In fact, she's practically floating on air. Seymour collects his plant, sort of a hybrid of a Venus flytrap, walks out the door to go back to the flower shop as his mother dances through the living room. He's named the plant Audrey Jr. after his co-worker Audrey. And oh my goodness, isn't that the most wonderful compliment? She gushes that she's never had anything named after her before. The plant is cute and different at first, but by the next day, it has wilted to the point that it's almost dead. Nobody can explain it. Later that night, Seymour tries watering it, but ends up cutting his hand. And the plant starts eating the drops of blood. He's like, wait a second. So he pricks his finger, squeezes the blood drops into the plant's mouth. It starts chewing again. Poor Seymour. He's just like, oh God, is this what you want? So by the next day, Audrey Jr. has gone from almost dead to as tall as the room. And Mr. Mushnick has a great line where he says, it grows like a cold sore from the lip. So Seymour comes down with a toothache, and Mr. Mushnick tells him to go to the dentist immediately. He gets to Dr. Farb's office. Seymour is not feeling at ease. In fact, the two of them end up fighting a duel with the dental tools. Seymour wins the duel. Dr. Farb has been defeated. And while Seymour is terrified, it does mean food for Audrey Jr. And who do you think shows up at this point? Our boy Jack enters the waiting room as an undertaker named Wilbur Force. He's wearing a dark suit with a bow tie. His hair is parted right down the middle. He calls to the exam room. Is this Dr. Farb's office? Seymour, panicking, says, just a minute. So Wilbur looks down at the table and finds a nice copy of Pain Magazine. 
He excitedly picks it up and starts reading through. Seymour calls to the waiting room, tells Wilbur he can come in. When he does, Seymour is wearing Dr. Farb's smock, and Dr. Farb is lying lifelessly on the dentist chair. Wilbur introduces himself, says this office came highly recommended by Mrs. Shiva, as he does a lot of undertaking for her relatives. He's looking around the office. He interestedly grabs at Seymour's scarf, which he's still wearing over the dentist's smock. But Seymour says, well, as you can see, I'm with a patient, so you'll have to come back another time. But Wilbur... Oh, I couldn't do that. I have three or four abscesses, a touch of pyorrhea, nine or ten cavities, I lost my pivot tooth, and I'm in terrible pain. (laughs) Seymour gives in. Wilbur happily goes back to his copy of Pain magazine and nearly gives himself a stroke over the excitement of reading about a man with cancer, tuberculosis, and a touch of the grip. Seymour has successfully hidden Dr. Farb's remains and has Wilbur come in. So as he comes in, he removes his jacket, he hops onto the chair, tells Seymour all about the work he needs to have done. He puts his own bib on, plays with all the tools, and examines each one. Seymour reluctantly picks up the drill. No Novocaine. It dulls the senses. (laughs) This is going to hurt you more than it is me. Oh, goody, goody, here it comes. So Seymour goes, okay, we're all done. But Wilbur says, aren't you going to pull any? And he gives him this look and he says, oh, go on. Seymour, again, has no choice but to give in. The sequence ends with Wilbur's back to the camera, thanking Seymour as Dr. Farb for the wonderful afternoon. Poor Seymour, visibly traumatized, says, okay, bye, and waves. Wilbur waves back, and when he turns around to face the camera, he's got this big smile on his face with every other tooth missing. It was a good day for Wilbur Force. And upon exiting the scene, that marks four features for Jack in the year 1960. I was never a big follower of the musical Little Shop of Horrors. I do love musicals, but my thing is more The Sound of Music, Rodgers and Hammerstein type of musicals. So I learned something. That in the movie version of the musical, which stars Rick Moranis as Seymour, the sadistic dentist is played by Steve Martin. And the role of the masochistic dental patient who asks for a slow root canal is played by Bill Murray. And all from another classic by Roger Corman. I don't want to give the whole movie away for you, because this is one that is genuinely funny. So I don't want to ruin the jokes for you. Watch this movie for yourself. The thing that's great about it is that it's meant to be over the top and silly and overacted. In this instance, with a horror comedy about a mutant plant that feeds on human blood, every time the actors go bigger, it only makes the scene funnier. You can find the original Little Shop of Horrors on Amazon Prime, and it's also streaming for free on Tubi. Again, that's T-U-B-I. I guess I didn't realize it would be such a big undertaking to review four B-movies for you in one episode, but I got more than I bargained for with these. So by the end of 1960, 
Jack Nicholson had five feature films under his belt in which he played a killer, a would-be rapist, a kidnapper slash murderer, a rapist, and an undertaker who loves pain. Jack, nice. But in all seriousness, I felt like there was a certain innocence. There's like a wholesomeness as I watched these films in these past few weeks. I mean, the wholesomeness isn't with the characters, of course, but more so in seeing Jack as a young actor just getting his start. A guy who came out to Hollywood all the way from New Jersey, got a job in the MGM animation department, took acting classes, and in a span of two years got speaking roles in five different low-budget movies and some television guest spots. Holy shit, you have to respect the hustle. You know, think about today when we have YouTube and Instagram and all these influencers and everybody wants to be a star instantly. Less and less people, it seems like, are willing to move too far away from their home or work their way up from nothing. I touched on this in my last blog entry on Medium with Clovercrest Media Group, and I really invite you to subscribe to those blogs as well. I'll have another new entry the day after this episode is released. I feel like dissecting all these movies one right after the other, I'm getting to know a young Jack, one who wasn't yet the confident guy that everyone knows today, but one who was new to the business and was paying his dues to get to that future. So next week, I'll have another indie feature for you, this one a Western. It came out in 1962, and it is called The Broken Land. If you liked what you heard today, and trust me, I know it was a lot, leave a review, give me a good rating. Every time you do that, it helps more people find this podcast. Follow You Don't Know Jack podcast on Facebook and Instagram. This has been a production of Clovercrest Media Group. Follow Clovercrest Media on all of your socials for other great original podcasts. I'm Sarah Dimio, and this has been You Don't Know Jack. 